turn with me to Luke. Luke 1, 46 through 56 today. I feel a little out of balance. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come into your presence by your word, grant us to know you as the God who is holy, holy, holy. Grant us the grace to see you as the God of creation, the God of promise and fulfillment, a God who is the consuming fire and the God of our salvation. In light of who you are, will you cause us to see ourselves as we are? Will you humble us, Lord, in your presence, whatever our station in life, and give us grace to see ourselves as small, and you as very great. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Luke 1, 46 through 56. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Amen. This is God's word. Kelly has sought to ingrain in my kids Jesus' words, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I've got that down, though application is still maybe something of an issue. I'll hear them in the other room playing Uno. I want to go first, so that means you want to go last. But it is true, isn't it? The first shall be last and the last shall be first in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught us, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, Of course, this ethic is not unique to Christ. Uh, It is the way that God has always worked. He esteems those who are lowly and brings to nothing those who are mighty. It is Uh, The great reversal, if you will. So this is our final week of Advent. We prepare to celebrate the first coming of our Lord Jesus at Christmas. We are reminded that uh, it was not the strength of the will of men who brought about this great and majestic day of the entrance of Christ into the world, but it was the great and mighty hand of God. Mary herself is one more in a long line of examples of God making himself great through that which is small. We'll draw from this text three basic exhortations in hopes that the word of the Lord in this song would instill in us a spirit of humility and worship 
as we're directed to see His majesty. Uh, and the first exhortation is just magnify the Lord. Magnify the Lord. This passage is a psalm or a song or a canticle, if you like. Uh, often it's known as the Magnificat, uh, which simply just means magnifies. It's the first word in, of the song in the Latin translation or the Vulgate. Um, and it just means magnifies. My soul magnifies the Lord. And what is it to, make, to, to, to magnify? What does that mean? Well, it means to make larger. I'm 34, but when I was a kid, I had 2015 vision. I could see like an eagle, but now more and more I like those little little icons, the, the magnifying glass with the plus sign to make the text larger on the computer. Uh, I'm enjoying that. That's magnification. It's making it larger. John himself, who is in the hearing of the voice of Mary's song through his mother's womb, will one day say of Jesus, I must decrease and he must increase. On an individual level, this great reversal must take place. Uh, the Lord must increase and we must decrease. Not just in word or pretense, but really and truly in our own hearts. We must begin to see the Lord as big and we ourselves as small. Notice Mary's own magnification of the Lord begins in her heart. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Uh, soul and spirit are here used synonymously in parallel uh, of the inner man or woman in her case. Uh, it's the spiritual component of a man who is made up of body and soul. Two parts. I wish my brother Stan was here to argue with me about that, but I, I would submit that we're two parts not three, body and soul. Naturally, uh, to fallen man, the soul, the, the very core of human uh, existence is the source of our, our rot, is the fountainhead of our filth, that, that pride, that self-aggrandizement, uh, self-magnification. It begins in the heart as a fallen man. It's in the very heart of hearts that we believe ourselves to be wiser than God, more loving than God, more trustworthy than God. But because of the mercy of the Lord, humility has found a seat in the heart of Mary so that she magnifies God and she rejoices in him. It is easy to take the credit for blessings that we have. How many times have you been kind of at your wit's end? Praying fervently, I don't know what to do. Crying out to God over a particular situation. Seeking His, His grace and favor. And then you get to the other side of it. And it went pretty well. And you think, man, I handled that pretty well. <laughs> How easy it would have been for Mary to say of herself, well, well just look at me now. The, the mother of the Messiah. I knew I had it in me. But no, her, her soul magnifies the Lord. Her spirit turns Godward. It rejoices in God, her Savior. Like the publican, she recognizes that the Lord has been merciful to me, a sinner. 
And this whole song magnifies the Lord. No fewer than 18 times over the course of 11 verses, Mary refers to God either through a pronoun or a proper name. Uh, no fewer than 11 verbs speak of the action of God. So this is an example of the magnification of God. But if you want to know, I want to magnify the Lord. How do I go about doing that? This is a great example. Enlarge in your heart and mind the things that he is and the things that he has done. Uh, write them out if you want. Type them out and, and then use that little icon and make them bigger. Increase the font size. Magnify the Lord. Consider what he's done and rejoice in your heart. Mary expresses the reason why she magnifies the Lord. She has a chain of of three reasons. Uh, The first answer in the catechism says that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I think the glorify part makes sense to our minds initially, Uh, you know, Okay, worship, service, self-sacrifice, give me the list and I'll do it, but enjoy. How do I enjoy God? What does that look like? And if we're honest, I think maybe sometimes we feel a sense of guilt about that, about enjoying. Isn't enjoying about me, not God or not somebody else? Isn't pursuing happiness through God some kind of a false pretense or wrong motive? But as she begins to enumerate her reasons, we see Mary knows she has been the object of the favor of the Lord, and she's thankful. She's amazed at how God has blessed her in particular. She gives three main reasons initially. First is that he has lifted her up, verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. God does not pick his people like the fifth grade team captain picks dodgeball members. Uh, We might want that, or at least we might think we might want that, that God chose me or put his favor on me because I'm so athletic or beautiful or, or pious or qualified. But Mary recognizes her own estate, and she's simply grateful. It's not for anything in her, but but wow, he's shown her favor. He's looked on her humble estate, in fact, and he's called her blessed. Her second reason is that all generations will call her blessed. Mary sees in this event the conception of Christ something of significance for the whole world. And she is in awe because she sees just how high God has lifted her. Her story would be renowned for ages and ages. Generations and generations would pass on this story to their children. And indeed, here we are 2,000 years later. Americans of mostly European descent talking about a young Hebrew girl from Nazareth. So rather than getting a big head She's simply floored at the heights of blessing that she's received. The third reason why she magnifies the Lord is that the Lord himself is mighty and holy, and he has done great things for her. Uh, Mary is certainly not mighty. 
She's holy in the sense that she's set apart unto God for a special calling, but she has no inherent holiness of her own. Rather, he who is omnipotent has done great things for her. For God, any interaction with mere creatures is is a condescension. It's a lowering of himself. But as he lowers himself, let's not think of him as, as somehow less transcendent or less being as being a, a person unto himself or less holy other because he has chosen to set his love on us. Also, let's not lift ourselves up to his level because he's chosen to lift, to set his love on us. A king is no closer to a beggar for his charity toward the beggar and neither is the beggar closer to kingliness because of the charity of the king. How much more then should the creature and the sinner simply stand in awe at the holy name of God for what he has done anytime God chooses to grace us with his favor. And thus Mary says, holy is his name. Mary's focus remains steadfastly on the Lord, um, the source of all goodness and blessing. And yet she's astounded at what, what God has done for her. And I think that's kind of at the heart of what it means to glorify and enjoy God, is to personally rejoice at what God has done for us. Say, wow, he has done great things for me. And so we respond, similar to Mary, that our soul magnifies the Lord and our heart rejoices in God our Savior. Next, Mary's song begins to to transition toward how God works in general in the world. And in fact, we see her story uh, does fit into a broader pattern of how God works in the world, which will lead now to our second exhortation, which is simply fear the Lord. So magnify the Lord, fear the Lord. Jesus tells a story in, in Luke chapter 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's pattern with men. There are two kinds of people. Those who know their sin, see their need for a savior and turn to God for mercy and those who see themselves as somehow righteous or or sufficient in themselves. Mary says the objects of God's mercy are those who fear the Lord from generation to generation. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Uh, If you'd like to turn there, Psalm 103, um, there, there is in Psalm 103 an echo, or really in Mary's hymn, an echo of Psalm 103. 
Uh, we'll begin in verse 1 and kind of just do a survey through it. We won't read the whole thing, but um, begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. And in verse 4 it says, uh, Of the Lord, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And in verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And in verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his commandments. So this is, again, that great contrast of the mercy of the Lord to those who are frail, for those who are weak, for those who are sinful, and yet those who fear the Lord and keep his covenant. This is that great Reversal. Those who see themselves as, as sufficient, those who are mighty from a worldly pr- perspective, will be reduced. Those who are frail, who, who are bruised reeds, who know they are dust, who know their need, God will raise them up. Those who stand and, and shake their fist at God, who treat God as an equal, will be cast down. But those who fear the Lord, who stand in, in holy reverence and awe of the Lord, fearing the Lord as he ought to be feared, will be lifted up. In the following verses, Mary recalls to memory this pattern of reversal. Uh, there's three sort of themes, great reversals here. And the first one is pride in verse 51. God, it says of, she says of God, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Initially, my, my thought, my mind goes to the Tower of Babel, those who were scattered because of the pride of their hearts. But I think Mary's language more recalls uh, the Exodus and even the song of another woman, Miriam, Exodus 15. Uh, 14 through 13, we have some of Miriam's song. We see here again the theme of pride, the pride of Pharaoh and him being cast down. Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he came and came into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power and right. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. 
You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You can see there in the reflection of Mary's song and Miriam's song, they're very similar. That God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Notice the contrast between those who are proud in their hearts and Mary who magnifies the Lord in her heart. C.S. Lewis, I think, and among many others, have identified pride as kind of the root sin of all sins. He says, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least, nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are conceited indeed. That said, humility does not mean we're supposed to uh, be down on ourselves all the time. Self-pity is its own manifestation of pride. Instead, we should notice the way Paul sets up the contrast in Romans 12:13. Do not uh, think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but wallow in self-pity and self-degradation. I think that's how we think, but that's not what he says. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we're actually commanded to have an accurate self-perception, to know who we are as image bearers of God, as men and women in Christ, as simul justice et peccator, sinner and saint. So the proud may boast in themselves or they may refuse to acknowledge God's hand in their lives that we think we know better than God. But God scatters those who are proud in their thoughts of their heart. Like the men of Babel, like like Egypt and Pharaoh, his strong arm reduces boasting to nothing. The second uh, reversal here is that of power. Power in verse 52, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Nebuchadnezzar comes to mind for me as a great example who, who looked out over his kingdom and says, look what I have built. The Lord reduced him to eating grass like a cow and his hair grew and his nails grew long like like an animal. And then the Lord restored him, and Nebuchadnezzar said, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For this dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So he cast down Nebuchadnezzar from his pride. We could also be reminded of King Saul, who was a mighty man. He stood a foot taller than his kinsmen, his countrymen. And yet he was brought to nothing. He was 
embarrassed and ultimately replaced by David, who was a shepherd boy who wasn't even included when Samuel was picking the kings because no one thought he would be the king, the youngest son. Mary's not saying that God always gives seats to authority of authority to the lowly as though there's this continuous cycle. Uh, But ultimately, it is God who oversees the government of man. And he decides when to bring down and when to raise up. So if we love the idea of, of possessing power, of being able to wield control and influence for our own gain, be it on a national political scale or even within our family structure, we should be very careful. For God loves to bring low those who possess worldly clout. And he delights to esteem those who are small, people like Mary. The third reversal here is that of wealth. We have pride, power, and then wealth. Verse 53, And he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. There's many echoes of Hannah's song here and Mary's song as well. and You could spend a whole sermon looking at that. Uh, but here's one of them from 1 Samuel 2.5. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. I think as some of the most wealthy people in the world, as people who have never really known what it is to be hungry, at least I haven't, we have to be aware of that danger of self-sufficiency, of thinking we're self-sufficient. We should remember Jesus' warning that it would be easier for, for a rich or a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But we should also remember what he said, that with man it is impossible, with God all things are possible. David, Solomon, Abraham are all examples of men who, who were imperfect, sinful men, who were very wealthy, but saw their own lowliness before their Lord. They saw their own need for repentance and salvation. The materially poor have a felt need for something like salvation. And it often draws them to Christ in a way that the rich are not drawn to Christ. However, also we see, as we see in the book of John, once their felt need is fulfilled, they'll often just leave. So the greater hunger, the greater need that we have then is spiritual hunger. Jesus said in in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus also said, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So this is the irony of of the great reversal that those who believe themselves to be full are tragically empty. And those who know their emptiness will be filled. It's the poor in spirit who will receive rich blessing. This whole section speaks to what Mary said about the fear of the Lord, that, that mercy is for those who fear the Lord. 
Uh, it's the beautiful irony of this great reversal that warns us and reminds us and promises us that whatever we have in this life, uh, be it grounds for boasting, power and status or wealth, that when we come before the strong arm of the Lord who scatters the proud, we come before him naked. We're stripped of all that we have that we think makes us favorable. But it's those who stand before the Lord as though naked now, who tremble before his holy name with the knowledge that there's nothing that can make us right before him, save that wee little baby that's in Mary's womb. If we will receive mercy, we must know that we are needy. and We must seek salvation from the one who can supply it. Now Mary's prayer uh, psalm moves from the general MO of the Lord to his relationship with his covenant people. And our third exhortation is simply believe the Lord. Magnify the Lord. Fear the Lord and believe the Lord. I think if you're like me, and I think we're all like this to an extent, that our default setting and view of God is, is the vending machine in the sky. That divine favor is somehow determined by how smoothly my life is going. But in those kinds of moments, it pays to remember that Mary, as Mary does, that as her individual, as individual as her response is in this psalm, her life actually fits into a much larger story. It's clear as this story progresses through Luke uh, that the people view the events that are unfolding here in a corporate, covenantal, and historical way. Zechariah says in Luke in uh, 66-70, uh, through Luke 1, 66-75, in his song, says in Zechariah, his father was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited the redeemed and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without, with, without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Remember, this is after 400 years of silence. Now John the Baptist comes. Now the Messiah comes. And Zechariah bursts forth in this song of salvation for the nation of Israel. Same is true of Simeon in Luke 2, 29-32. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, for glory to your people Israel. And likewise, Anna, in the same passage, coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So this, this whole affair, the arrival of the Messiah, is not just for Mary. It's a corporate affair. It's a corporate salvation based on the promise of the Lord. Now, the, the nation of 
of Israel has been faithless. Over and over again, they turned away from the fear of the Lord and to the fear of other gods. And yet the Lord is showing mercy to Israel. Why? Why is he doing that? It's Mary said herself, those who fear the Lord receive God's mercy. Well, the reason God is doing that is because God is faithful when we're faithless. That he made a promise to the man of faith, to Abraham, and his mercy to the nation is the fulfillment of that promise that he made to Abraham. So Mary says in 54, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So I think remember this, whether you're in a season of trial or a season of blessing, that that what God is doing with me is bigger than me. Because I'm a part of the covenant people of God. I am an heir to the promises of God. And He's bringing me into fellowship with Him. He's never failed to fulfill a single one of His promises. And surely He will not fail us either. So we magnify the Lord. We fear the Lord and we believe the Lord. I think most of our problems come back in life to two simple uh, errors in estimation. We estimate God to be too low and we estimate ourselves to be too high. Instead, magnify the Lord in your soul and rejoice in your spirit in the God of your salvation. Amen.